Okay, so I want to preface with I have a bit of a tongue twister today, so just go with it with me, okay? <laughs> All right, good morning. Um, our scripture reading is from Genesis 14, 1 through 12. In the days of Am- Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Shador Laomer, king of Elam, and title king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedelomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shedelomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim in Zuzim in Ham, the Emin in Sheveh, Kiriathim in the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the countries, country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Shedelomer, king of Elam, title king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brooklyn. Boy, talk about some really crazy tongue twister of some names in there. Man, uh, we are uh, in the midst of a series. If you are uh, following along, we're calling Walking by Faith on the Life of Abram, also known as Abraham. It's confusing, right? Lots of confusing names in the texts here. Um, And the illustration we've been using for faith throughout this series is that of a chair, right? It's all good and well to believe uh, that a chair will support you in theory, but it's, you know, another thing to actually sit in the chair, another thing to actually trust that the chair will support you. And so we've been watching Abraham take those first faltering steps of faith, uh, trusting God, and now we're seeing that faith beginning to mature. We're beginning to see that faith actually develop and grow in his life. And this morning, we're picking up the story with Abram's next lesson in the school of faith. In chapter 14, uh, the action picks up here uh, with Abram's nephew Lot, who we knew was going to get into trouble last week, getting carried off into battle, and Abraham has to go bail him out. That was the text that we just read today, uh, Five kings against four kings, getting this huge battle. Um, it's an amazing piece of history. And Lot gets kind of carried off like one more piece of luggage uh, in the midst of uh, the battle. But we're going to see God is going to continue to teach Abraham 
how to grow in his faith. We're going to see he's going to learn new lessons about how to walk with faith. And so the big question I want to be addressing this morning is how does God strengthen our faith? How does God develop our faith? How does God help us grow in our faith? We're going to see that God strengthens our faith through action. We're going to see that God strengthens our faith through priestly intercession. And we're going to see that God strengthens our faith through testing. And we're all on this same journey of faith, right? Learning what it means to actually live by by faith, to to live like God actually exists and we can trust him and we can live our lives um, based on that. And so uh, my prayer this morning is that we would be able to step into that more and more this morning. So let's pray as we enter this uh, time together. So Father, we thank you for uh, Abram. We thank you for uh, this story, God watching him grow in his faith and begin to take new steps of faith following you. And we pray, uh, God, that you teach us what it looks like to follow you, to trust you, uh, to build um, our lives around you this morning. Yeah. So would you come by the power of your spirit? Would you uh, speak to your people through your word? So a couple of background pieces we need to look at here. Um, if you are following along in Genesis 14, and if you are able to uh, navigate that uh, tongue-twisting uh, list of names and uh, battles in chapter uh, 14, we'll see that the action really picks up in the narrative here in chapter 14. You know, it's kind of slow last week as Abram and Lot are trying to you know, figure out where they're going to live in the promised land, and they're going to decide where they're going to settle with all their flocks and property. But this week, we get into an intense battle scene. Right from the start, there's one group of kings um, that rebel against their overlords, which is pretty common in the ancient Near East. You know, you get this petty, you know, kingdoms that like they're paying taxes and paying all this property to a king. And after a while, they get sick of it. And so they throw off that rebellion. And then the other king, usually the bigger king, comes, and this time it's four kings, and they come and they just crush the opposition. And that happened all the time in the ancient Near East. Aren't you so glad that we don't live in a season where, where you, know, you know, we try to pay taxes, and then we throw off taxes, and they just come and pillage our land and, you know, take people away um, as captives and plunder. But that was life in the ancient Near East, in so much of the world of Canaan, uh, there was this insecurity in life. And so for Lot, who has found himself living right near uh, Sodom, he finds himself in the unfortunate position, right, of having camped out with a bunch of guys that have just rebelled against their kings, have just gotten smashed in battle, and now he's gotten carried away as more just one more piece of plunder, one more piece of the, uh, of the plunder there that has been taken And we kind of knew this was coming for Lot. Um, Last week, the author was like, you know, and Lot settled by a bunch of notorious sinners. You know, these people that lived in this particular city of Sodom where he had taken up residence were really um, bad people, right, for various reasons, as we're going to see as uh, this series unfolds. Um, But Lot has been carried off, and not through any fault of his own, but because of his association with uh, this city, the, the kind of sin city of the ancient Near East. Uh, and so here Lot is, um, he's getting carried off as a piece of the plunder in verses 1 through 12. 
and Abram is going to have to come and rescue him. And so what we see here really as the story unfolds with Lot and Abram, Lot is kind of a foil to Abram's faith. We see in Abraham this man of faith who's stepping out of faith, learning what it means to trust God, to follow God, to walk with God. And we see in Lot, the other hand, what it looks like to just not follow God, to to ignore God, to live life based in your own judgment and your own instincts and your own character. And so I think there's a little bit of a word of caution for us, even as we open our text this morning, right? There's, There's two ways to live your life, right? You can Live your life wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, following him, walking with him, trusting him in your life. Or you can, you can try to live on your own instincts, right? Follow your own heart, follow your own desires and feelings and intuitions and, and kind of trust your own luck, right? Those are two ways in which to live. We've seen Abraham is stepping out on this journey of faith, following God, building his life around what God's going to do. When we see Lot, he's just kind of got his eyes on the material prosperity, what he can do to get rich and get ahead. And, uh, and we've seen that hasn't worked particularly well for him so far in the narrative. And I want to suggest to us, we have those same options before us, right? We can live by faith, you know, in this unseen God, in this unseen world, in the kingdom that he is building in the world, or we can live by what we can see and touch, what we can quantify, what we can experience, uh, what we can kind of put our hands on. You know, we could discover a deeper meaning and purpose in our lives, or we can settle for believing the material world is all there is, you know, and that is just what it is. You just make the best of it that you can. We can embark on this journey of faith, or we can totally miss out, um, like Lot, and just settle for life in the world um, as it is and make the best of it. Um, Lot captures, um, or Lot's capture really sets up the action here in chapter 14, uh, but the narrator isn't interested in highlighting Lot's uh, foolishness nearly so much as he is highlighting the ways Abram is growing and maturing in his faith. And so this big battle, this big war, Lot being carried off as plunder, all really sets the scene for how Abram is going to respond, how Abram's going to grow in his faith for the great adventure that God has for Abram in faith. And so I want to look at some of these lessons that God has for Abram here in this text. And the first one I want you to see is that God strengthens Abram's faith through action. Uh, God strengthens Abram's faith through action. He actually grows in his faith by actually living like God exists, by actually stepping out in faith and actually trusting God. We see this in verses 13 through 16. So Lot has been taken captive, he's been carried off as plunder. And then in verse 13, we read these words. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the, he- Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, the north, and Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And so when Lot is taken captive, Abram does a pretty brave thing, right? He, he gathers his allies, his household warriors, and pursues these victorious kings to rescue his foolish nephew Lot, who's gotten himself caught. Um, so far, the only glimpse into Abram's courage has been his lack of it in the land of Egypt, right? If you remember um, that first week we were together and back in chapter 12, instead of 
protecting his wife, he asked her to lie about their marriage to save his own skin. Abram hasn't exactly been a uh, paragon of courage and virtue thus far in our text, right? It's not exactly been the profile of courage. And also being kind of an immigrant, a foreigner to the land, Abram uh, has been so far laying low, right? He's been avoided picking fights, avoiding getting into trouble with the surrounding kings and nations. But here in chapter 14, when his nephew is in trouble, he dashes off to the rescue at great risk to himself. What's going on here in the text? What I want you to see is that Abram is growing in his faith, right? He's trusting God to protect him and and his extended family and acting like God is actually going to intervene, be a part of his life. In some respect, I want to suggest that faith is like a muscle. The more we use it, the more it grows, right? The less we use it, it atrophies, right? Abram is actually exercising his faith. He's stepping out in faith, right? As a crisis emerges, one of his family members is in danger, right? He steps out in faith to go and rescue him against great odds, you know, all the odds are against him. He's just a small force taking on four great kings who are regional kind of superpower in the area. Uh, But he's able to strike out in faith and strike a blow uh, for God. So he takes his, his allies, his fighting men, and they make a strategic raid by night to recover Lot and his possessions. And we're not sure uh, whether he took on the entire army or maybe just a few of the little you know, parties that were kind of bringing the plunder back um, to uh, the land where they had come from, uh, from Mesopotamia, where Abram was initially from. Um, but we do know that Abram is able to rescue Lot. He's able to rescue the plunder and bring back a massive amount of people back to the land. And once again, we see God's blessing, right, that God gave him in Genesis 12, playing out in his life, right? Abraham has stepped out in faith. Um, he's become something of a bold warrior. And he steps out, defeats his enemies, brings back the plunder, and brings them back to the promised land. And so once again, we're wondering what happened to this guy? What happened to this anxious, fearful immigrant, right, hiding behind his own wife in Egypt, right? He's learning Uh, to live by faith. And we see him stepping up as a bold and decisive warrior in this text, not something any of us could have predicted by reading chapters 12 and 13. Uh, And this is rather startling. This is a rather startling transformation, but it's the kind of thing that happens when we embark on the life of faith. It's the kind of thing that happens once we start taking risks, once we start actually living like Jesus is alive and like he actually makes a difference in the world. Uh, Have you experienced this in your own life? Are there ways that you've actually seen God move as you've stepped out in faith? You've actually exercised those muscles of faith as you've actually taken steps to act like God is really alive, actually moved in faith to make significant decisions with your life, your future, your trajectory, your money, your gifts, your talents, your life path, and seeing God move in the midst of it. Uh, I love hearing Ken Wee's story, and you'll probably hear more of it um, as he's sharing, uh, join, as he's joining this whole elder uh, journey. But one of the wonderful things I loved about his story when he was sharing it with our, with our team of elders was about how as a young seminary student, um, God called him to global missions in Turkey. And uh, at the same time, he was terribly afraid of flying. Now, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever, you know, thought about being a global missionary, but usually that requires that you actually 
jump on a plane if you're going to go overseas to actually be in ministry, right? And and so here is this young seminary student (laughs) thinking about stepping out into this great calling that God has for him, absolutely terrified to get in an airplane. Apparently, Rhonda was just loving it and just like, let's go. This is an awesome adventure. Ken, on the other hand, right, is terrified. It required a massive leap of faith to actually get on an airplane and step out and do the kind of missionary work that Ken has been doing for the last several decades. And it's fascinating to see after taking that step of faith in his life, right, he's now a global traveler. He's been all over the world, flown to all the different parts of the the world in his missionary adventures. I share that story just to say that sometimes it takes us actually stepping out in faith, actually living like God is real, actually taking the steps to actually grow in your faith, right? You can have this speculative faith. You can say, yeah, God is real and I trust him and everything about him is true until you actually take the step, actually follow him into the great adventure that he has for you whatever that might be, right? You're not going to actually build your faith. You're not going to grow in your faith until you take that leap out into uh, the unknown. And so, obviously, stepping out of faith profoundly changes people. We see it in Abraham's story. see it briefly in Ken's story. And it's not just true of individuals. We stepped out uh, in faith as a church this last year to bring Josh on staff to buy a building and uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, just the, the dynamics God uses in our faith journey. Uh, I've had this quote on my computer for the last year from uh, missionary Hudson Taylor. Uh, he said this, he said, I found that there are three stages in every great work of God. He says, first, it is impossible Uh, then it is difficult, then it is done. I love that quote by Hudson Taylor. In every great work of God, there are three stages. First, it's impossible, then it is difficult, then it is done. And this week, uh, Kevin and I um, finally signed off uh, on the mortgage for this building. I've got some pictures on there, um, which may be up there, which is kind of cool. What seemed impossible last September and felt difficult in January is now done here in September. And so we are living in a building based on uh, the faith that God had for our church to take these steps and move forward from, you know, renting at Aquinas College for many years to actually step out in faith and kind of plant a flag here in this neighborhood and actually be a part of what God is doing in this city. And that's the germ, one of the journeys of faith that we've been on as a church. And I'm so thankful for so many of you who have joined us on this journey of faith to be a blessing to our city here and in this place. This is the kind of thing God is doing, right? As we step out into the journey of faith, we have to actually step out. We got to actually take the leap of faith if we're going to grow. Uh, Abraham's faith is growing and maturing through his actual exercise of that faith. But that's not the end of the story, not by a long shot. You see, Abraham is returning then from this great victory, right? So Lot, you know, is, is, is captured in battle, and Abraham goes and rescues him. It's this great step of faith. Uh, but sometimes the greatest challenges, right, are how are we going to deal with the successes? How are we going to deal with the victory? Abraham, Abram at this point is in an incredible position, right? He just defeated uh, these kings that have just terrorized the land, um, you know, 
All the kings of the land have been defeated. And then Abram defeated the guys that defeated those guys. So Abram is kind of like, he's the power right now. He's got all the plunder. He's got all the possessions. He's in this incredible position uh, of success and victory. And we wonder, how's he going to handle it, right? Is all this success going to go to his head, right? Is he going to think, I got this figured out. Now I am, I've got it all under control, How's he going to deal with it? Fortunately, God in his grace and mercy wants to continue growing this man in his faith. And so he sends him a priest to strengthen his faith. And so we need to look here at how God strengthens Abram's faith through priestly intercession, right? God strengthens our faith as we step out in faith, actually live into our faith, actually acts on our faith. But God also strengthened his faith through this intercession of a priest here. And so I want to read again here, or read ahead here into verse 17. Um, after Abraham returns victoriously with Lot and all the possessions, uh, if you're following along in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Cherdelomer and of the kings who were with him in the valley of, and the king, the king of Sodom went out, who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so let's take a closer look at this mysterious priest God sends to help Abram grow in his faith. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem, which is uh, Commoners think also a shortened form of Jerusalem, right? The city that would become the capital city of God's people. Uh, it's also a play on words because it sounds like shalom as well, the Hebrew word for peace. And so you have this man who's the king of righteousness, also the king of Jerusalem and the king of peace. Um, and finally, we're told he's a priest of God most high. So God has sent this remarkable figure, a king in which righteousness and peace all meet together in this priest of God uh, most high. And this is the first priest we stumble upon in the Bible, right? He seems to come out of nowhere, but he plays an important role in this pivotal moment in Abram's life. Right? While we know nothing of his origins, we do know that he blesses Abram in the name of God. He blesses God himself and then proceeds to throw a banquet with bread and wine for Abram as he returns from battle. What this priest does, he essentially reminds Abram of God's promises to bless him back in Genesis 12, of God's own blessedness as, God, as Abram's ultimate reward. And he offers a banquet representing the richness and generosity of God. You see, this priest is reminding Abraham of who God is, what he's like, the promises that he's kept and fulfilled. So as Abraham is at this high point in his life, he's just defeated all the kings in the region. He's come back with plunder and wealth. He's at this unimaginable high point in the trajectory of his life and his story. God sends this priest to remind him, Abraham, all the blessings you've had, all that you've received, they come from the Lord. They've come from the God of heaven and earth. Everything that you've received, all of the gifts, all the abilities, all the great accomplishments and successes of your life, they come from the Lord, your ultimate treasure, your ultimate reward. He's the one that ultimately throws the best party, the greatest celebration. And so Abraham is met by this priest who really reminds him of who God is, reminds him of his identity, reminds him of the promises of God. It's a beautiful moment for Abram to be reminded at the peak of his success, at the height of all that God is doing in his life. 
right? To remember who God is and what he's done in his life. And Abram humbly recognizes this ministry as from God, right? He recognizes his priest and he goes and offers him a tenth of all that he has, of all the spoils that come in. Uh, what's going on here? You know, this is such a strange thing, right? This guy, mysterious priest just shows up, blesses him, reminds him of who God is, what he's like in his life, of the blessedness of God, throws him a big banquet. Um, what on earth is going on? And then Abraham gives him like 10% of the spoils. Like, what on earth? Right? Melchizedek has reminded him that God is the ultimate victor in this conflict. And he's been faithful to bless Abram, and Abram grasps the appropriateness of returning a portion of all that God has given back to him. Right? This is the concept of the tithe in Scripture. Right? Everything we have comes from God, so it's only natural that we would take a portion of what he has given us to help advance his work in the world. And, you know, we don't talk about money a lot here at Redemption City Church. We haven't even been passing the plates or anything. But I have to say that if you really want to grow in your faith, there is nothing quite like tithing, giving 10% back of your income to God's work in the world. Uh, think you are a person of faith? <laughs> think you're a man of God? Think you're Try giving you know, 10% of your disposable income, your play money, <laughs> to see God's work advance in the world. Boy, talk about, talk about a challenging part of faith. You're looking for a simple practice to help you grow in your faith in God, your trust for him, what it means to walk by faith in him. This one would be a, it'd be a really good challenge. And uh, Abram takes that challenge and walks in the faith of it, and it becomes a point of beautiful growth for him. And, and 10% is not a magical number. Um, it's just some great training wheels to use as you're thinking about how to steward and use your money. Um, there are people that have done much more. Rick Warren famously added like 1% every year or more to his life. I think he's at about 90% now of giving his in, income back to God. It's just like, you just can't outgive God, you know? So, but, but 10% is a nice kind of training wheel there. But anyways, that's an aside. Um, the bigger point here that's going on in the text Right, is that God has sent his priest to bless Abram, to remind him that everything he has is from God, all the gifts and abilities and talents at this moment in his life as he is at the height of victory, the height of his power and prestige, you know, surrounded by riches and uh, glory, and he's just won this great battle and victory. Uh, God sends a priest to remind him that it's all from God. It's all a gift. Everything you've received, Abram, it is a gift from God. It's by his grace and for his Glory, And so that's the, the main theme that this text wants to drive home. God has sent a priest to minister to this man to remind him of God's work in his life. So Melchizedek strengthens Abram's faith and just in time because Abram's faith is also going to be tempted by this second king also that shows up on the scene. It's interesting, at the height of Abram's success, he's greeted by two men when he comes back. And isn't that how life often works, right? We find ourselves right in those moments of great success. You know, we have these crossroads emerge before us, right? Are we going to live our life with trust and following God and walking with him and uh, living our life with him? Or are we going to take the other fork in the road and kind of live life on our own, do life um, according to our own instincts, our own values, or follow our own heart, follow our own desires, uh, the king of Sodom is going to present another option, another way that he could respond to success in his life. And so I want to pick up the story here in verse uh, 20, and this is verse 21. So Abram gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, and then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for 
yourself. Now, if you remember anything about the king of Sodom, he is the king of what we might call the sin city of Palestine, right? This is a city peopled by notorious sinners, and we'll see why in a later week. But needless to say, right now, this king is trouble. He has been trouble already to Lot. It's kind of ensnared Lot. The reason Lot got carried off as a bunch of baggage in this last conflict is because he associated with the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom here, he's got no food, right? There's no blessing. There's no thanks for rescuing his people, no reminders about who God is or what he's doing. Uh, the king of Sodom has a savvy business transaction. He has an opportunity, right? Abram, if you just give me, and notice, you know, uh, Melchizedek is there to bless Abraham. <laughs> Here's the king of Sodom. Give me. That's how he starts his speech. Give me the person's but take the goods for yourself. Simple business transaction, right? I just want my people back. You can take all of my possessions and all. And we think, what harm could there be from Abram taking the possessions, taking the plunder, right? I mean, giving the king of Sodom back his people, which would be a very generous gesture. But, you know, clearly he should, you know, be able to enjoy the plunder. After all, you know, to the victor go the spoils, right? Abram has already been vastly enriched by his time in Egypt. So, so why the hesitation here with taking all of the riches that the king of Sodom is offering from all of these kings and all of this battle? See, here's the catch. The king of Sodom is offering him all the plunder to essentially purchase a strategic alliance. He can see that it'd be good for business to be one of Abram's friends, right? Abram's been successful in all he does. God's blessing has followed him everywhere. Abraham, however, has seen right now God's relationship with Lot's relationship with Sodom has played out. He knows that getting into any kind of relationship would compromise his beliefs and values, not to mention put him in imminent danger, just as it did with Lot. So Abram looks past the material gain to the spiritual dynamics in this situation, and he offers this response to the king of Sodom. He said, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anair and Eskal and Mamre take their share. Once again, we see Abram's faith is growing and maturing. Right? He's trusting God, not trusting in alliances, not in the obvious wealth in front of him. And we see Abram is passing this test. He's growing in his faith and trust in God. And we too should be, I think, sensitive to the subtle temptations to compromise our beliefs and values to get ahead, to pursue success at all costs, right? Uh, whether it's cutting corners, doing shoddy work, bending or breaking the rules, participating in unethical business practices, exploiting people along uh, the supply chain or workforce, or simply working with unethical people, shady characters, right? We put ourselves in danger. And there are, of course, so many ways uh, in our lives right now that we're challenged living out in the world, right? To bend our principles, our beliefs, and our uh, values, right? This is a test for Abram, right? He could get rich really quickly if he's willing to compromise on his beliefs and values, to work with a people that are notoriously, notoriously sinful, so Abram's learning about translating his faith into action. He has received timely help from this priest of God Most High, and he's learning not to take shortcuts in the life of faith. I want to close by considering how this mysterious priest of God Most High uh, could help us in our own faith journeys. You see, this mysterious 
figure, Melchizedek, comes up over and over in the scriptures. He becomes this pointer to a greater priest and king uh, that we see coming to the fore as the story of the Bible develops and grows. Uh, King David, Israel's greatest king, and the first Israelite to sit on Melchizedek's throne in Jerusalem, pens an entire song Psalm about a future priest king in the order of Melchizedek who will deliver God's people from all of their enemies. And so there's this momentum in the Bible towards a greater Melchizedek who's going to come, who's going to rescue God's people and restore them to fellowship, one that is going to be a priest and a king. Uh, And this messianic psalm points us to Jesus, right? To his authority, his power, his victory over all of our enemies, as well as his role as our great high priest, But it's not until the New Testament that we can really appreciate where uh, Jesus claims uh, to be this Messianic King from Psalm 10 uh, finally come to their fulfillment. Uh, Nowhere is Jesus' priestly work clearer than in Hebrews 7. In Hebrews 7, we learn that Jesus offers a a better hope through which we draw near to God by the power of his indestructible life. Jesus is a better priest. He's a better king. Here is a priest and king whose ministry endures forever because he has conquered death. He has defeated the grave and he lives to make intercession for us. And that's why the author of Hebrews concludes, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love that. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is this priestly intercession? I want to briefly unpack it for you so that you can appreciate the full beauty of the help that we have. Abram received some incredible help from Melchizedek, right? Incredible ministry of his priestly care at a pivotal moment in his life. We have an even greater priest who has an even greater ministry to us as a priest. Uh, Dane Ortland says in his wonderful book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, he says these words, One of the more neglected doctrines in the church today is the heavenly intercession of Christ. When we talk about Christ's intercession, we're talking about what Jesus is doing now. There's been a remarkable recovery of the glory of what Christ uh, did back then in his life, death, and resurrection to save me. But what about what he's doing now? For many of us, our functional Jesus isn't really doing anything now. Everything we need to be saved, we tend to think, is already accomplished, right? Is that true for you? As you think of Jesus right now, what is he doing? What is his heart towards you, his disposition towards you, his desire to meet you? What does it mean that Jesus always lives to make intercession for you, that he is living and interceding for you right now at this very moment in heaven as you're sitting here listening to these uh, words. Uh, Dane Ortland goes on to say this. He says, intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work. Not a reflection of anything lacking in his earthly work, The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. Intercession is the constant hitting refresh of our justification 
in the court of heaven. That's what God is doing. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He's bringing the realities of his work, his salvation, his grace, his mercy to bear, our standing before God because of what Jesus has done. He's the one that that hits that refresh button in our hearts so it becomes real and fresh and true and powerful to us as we sit here in church and as we Go on, if you've walked in the faith for any length of time, right, we need to be reminded of Jesus' work of intercession for us. Right? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is pleading for us, pleading his death and his resurrection on our behalf. Isn't that amazing? Even when we neglect our Heavenly Father's invitation to pray, Jesus is praying for us. And he is committed to save us to the uttermost, and he's not going to let us settle for anything less. Uh, Again, Dane Orland says, God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our soul, those places where we were most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost. He saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. Uh, I hope you feel that this morning, the beauty of that reality, right? right? That Jesus' priestly ministry, right? That Jesus' prayer for us reaches right down into the deepest darkest parts of our hearts into our sin in the midst of our struggle Uh, and so whether you are riding that arc of success like Abram right now you know everything's just going smashingly right now Jesus ministers to us in our sex to humble us to remind us uh, of who we are and our calling and our role and and how our lives are designed to bring honor and glory to him and if you are right now at not at the top but if you're in the valleys if you're the deep darkness of sin and discouragement and depression and and fear and anxiety. Jesus meets us there too as our great high priest. He's praying for us right now. He knows the situations. He knows the circumstances in your life. He knows what you're going through. In fact, your life is the specific curriculum that he has for your growth. He has you right where he wants you. Uh, And he's a great high priest who's praying for you and your growth in this unique season of your life. Life and, and so what would it look like to live like we have this kind of help, this kind of priest-king is strengthening our faith? I think it should give us great courage to know that our king is seated on his throne. He is advancing his kingdom and he invites us to join us, to take those steps of faith out, to be a part of what he's doing in the world, to exercise those muscles of faith. Uh, it should give us great confidence that Jesus is praying for us even now in the midst of our struggles and weaknesses, our successes and all the moments that are out there, Jesus is praying for us. Finally, it should give us great comfort that Jesus is committed to saving us to the uttermost and won't settle for anything else. Wherever you are in your faith, whether you're on a low ebb or a high ebb, high ebb Jesus is committed uh, to saving you to the uttermost. And our, my prayer for our church is that we be a church that grasps, that we wrap our minds around the beauty of our Savior, this high priest who intercedes for us, that's praying for us, that's pleading before the Father that we might be the kind of people that he's called us uh, to be. And as we gather around this table, we remember our high priest, we remember his sacrifice on our behalf uh, for our sins. We remember his resurrection, uh, the calling that he has. Uh, my prayer is that we uh, would more and more just be able to reflect on the beauty of this priest 
that we have. Abram had a remarkable priest come and step in in his moment of need. We have a great high priest in the heavens who lives to make intercession for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that right now, whatever we're going through, whatever the troubles, whatever the trials, whatever the uh, things right now that are weighing us down, God, you are interceding for us. You have laid down your life on our behalf. God, you have graciously given us all things. uh, And you're in heaven now praying that the reality of our redemption would come home to us, that we could truly taste and see that you are good. And as we gather around this table, God, I pray uh, that we would feel ministered to, uh, not simply by the music, not simply by uh, a sermon, not simply by the songs, but that we would feel ministered to by our great high priest, that you would meet us this morning, that you would bring home the truths that you are pleading for us, that you are able to save to the uttermost. Would you do that work this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.